Hi, it's John here. And it's Teresa. Hey, Teresa, you know, if we did a word bubble on disruptors, I suspect the top word would be innovation. It means everything, and some people say it means nothing. Curious what you think of when you hear the word innovation. Oh man, I've been thinking a lot about this and I still don't have a clear answer, but to my mind, I think it's the the systems, the resources, processes, the infrastructure that supports novel ideas that improve how we live, how we do business, really everything. It's that improvement upon existing things. What are your thoughts, John? Wow, Teresa, you're such the tech person. I thought you were going to say Tesla, iPhone, rattle off various technologies as being the, the, the cliches of innovation. And here you are talking about systems. Yeah, innovations, all of those things and a lot more. I got to serve on the selection committee recently of the Governor General's Innovation Awards. It was a great uh, half day that I spent with some uh, remarkable Canadians looking at amazing innovators in every sector from every region across the country. It's the annual celebration of innovations that exemplify excellence and help improve the quality of life in Canada and around the world. And so often we forget that really is the test of innovation. Is it improving the quality of life, whether it's a phone, a car, or the way we run a school or a a neighborhood? You are so right, John. And even Steve Jobs, you know, going back to that iPhone reference, uh, he's one of the great tech innovators of our time. He understood that innovation is about more than just the iPhone. And it He famously said that it's what distinguishes between a leader and a follower. The innovator, the leader, is that bold risk taker who sees a need and risks a new approach. And when that proves successful, it encourages others to follow in that innovator's footsteps, opening the door to the possibility of more innovation. And we'll be exploring an inspiring example of that later on in this show. But the world has changed dramatically in recent years, John, and with it, the need to innovate is changing too. We're going to need innovation at every turn as we try to come to grips with the fallout from COVID, as we think about the backlash on globalization and how we can continue to make goods in new, more innovative ways that don't drive up the cost of living for everyone. And we're going to have to do that in a world of economic and fiscal constraints where perhaps we don't have the resources that we might have assumed even 12 months ago. And that's where innovation really proves itself in allowing us all to do more with less and perhaps even leaving less of a footprint on the planet. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm John Stackhouse. And I'm Trin Teresa Doe. In this episode of Disruptors, we're looking at innovation, what it is, where you find it in the Canadian economy, and why it's so important. After the break, we'll hear from the two co-founders of a groundbreaking preschool in Nunavut who are bringing innovation to the world of early childhood education. But first, our conversation with one of Canada's leading thinkers on innovation. He's a professor, an author, a former tech entrepreneur, and key advisor to the federal government who has some fairly provocative things to say on what this country should be doing to build a more prosperous innovation economy. Dan Bresnitz is the Monk Chair of Innovation Studies, co-director of the Innovation Policy Lab, and professor of global affairs and political science at the University of Toronto. 
He's also the Clifford Clark Visiting Economist at the Department of Finance. And prior to joining U of T in 2013, he co-founded a software startup in his native Israel. In addition to all that, and if all that weren't enough, in March, Dan won the Balsili Prize for Public Policy from the Writers' Trust of Canada for his book, Innovation in Real Places, Strategies for Prosperity in an Unforgiving World. Dan, welcome to Disruptors. Thank you, John uh, and Teresa. It's uh, wonderful to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast and want to jump right into one of the arguments in your book about the difference between innovation and invention. Too many of us <laughs> confuse or conflate those. I wonder if we can start off with a quick explanation of the difference between innovation and invention and why that's important. Let me, let me move one step even further and then do that. So let's first ask why innovation is important. And innovation is important because it's the only way to have sustained economic and human welfare growth, period. That's it. So if, if you don't care about those things, innovation is not important. If you're most human beings, innovation is critically important. However, innovation is not only invention of new things. So if invention is the act of coming up with a new idea, Innovation is the act of employing those ideas to offer goods, products, and services, and all across the production stages. So from the coming up with a completely new idea, to improving things, to combining them with others, to making them more accessible, all those things. When we talk about innovation, often it's in abstract terms. And so I'm wondering, could you provide an illustration of innovation, why it matters to a company or a country, and what's at stake? Let's start with one example. We are now talking in something that very old technology, which is called tele or video conferencing. If only 10 years ago, the three of us would have to do that, uh, we will do everything in our power to make sure we're in the same room. Because otherwise, we'll have to go to specialized rooms, which are unbelievably expensive. And the quality of what we can achieve in those rooms will be horrific. And that's just 10 years ago. And that technology was invented at least 30 years ago. What really happened that completely transformed it, right? The real innovation is that huge millions of millions of engineering hours in improving uh, processing and improving software algorithm and improving data communication to the fact that when we had COVID, we actually did not need to stop most of what we're doing, including the education of our kids, because teleconferencing, Zoom, Teams, the software we use now was not only good enough, but cheap enough that we did don't even think about the cost. Everything you lay out, Dan, has me thinking about the role of government and the fact that government was arguably absent in a lot of that innovation that you just, uh, you just specified. Some people feel that innovation actually increases the farther you get away from, uh, from, from government. And yet here you are in Ottawa, in the, uh, in the, in the beating heart of government in the D Department of Finance. Why did you, having spent so much of your life trying to understand innovation and being a participant in the innovation economy, want to go into the depths of government to try to tackle it, as opposed to doing it from the, the outside world? So first of all, most people are wrong, and in multiple ways, okay? If you look just at the example that I gave you, 
We can also talk about things like vaccines and mRNA technology on the rest. You will find out that up to 85, probably 90% of the funding and all the other resources like human beings, like me, a professor, that went into developing those technologies. So in the end, somebody can work for two years and make billions on them was government, public money, public people. Not only that, but if you would be in any class on the economics of innovation 101, one of the first things that they will tell you is that you should expect under free market condition to have less than optimal innovation. And the reason are, I mean, there's multiple reasons, but to simplify it, innovation, it has a huge amount of both risk and uncertainty on one side. And the other, without rules, there is no way that if you and I, John, will spend years and all our money to come up with a new innovation, which in the end is just information. Unless the state then makes sure that we can make money out of it, everybody will copy us in a second. So we will have no incentives, no market incentives to actually spend all that time, now add the uncertainty, now add the risk. And what you would expect under free market condition, meaning without government, is to have very little innovation, if at all. So what do you say to business leaders about how they might be able to move the dial and, and take on some more of that risk? Up until a few years ago, if I was an investor, I would give gold medals to all the Canadian business management because they have managed to give us one of the highest profit margin in the world with one of the lowest risk. The problem is, as a Canadian, it has, to our society, rather negative consequences. Median wages, for example, are stuck for 46 years. And the quality of work is much, much, much lower than what it should have been. I also think that Canadian managers are first and foremost Canadian. So if they understand what is at stake, if they understand the issue, this is a behavioral problem. And they are also giving the other resources, right? Lower risk and lower uncertainty, which a government can do until we all figure out how Canadian business can routinize, so innovate all the time, then I think Canadian businesses will actually be very open to that. But when you have a story over 30 years in which you completely disregard what is a main failure, all your recommendation, policy solution, business behavior will take you in the wrong way because you don't admit what is wrong. How do we ensure we're getting more innovation in the market structures that we have? Does that have to be directed from government? Does it have to be demanded from consumers? Or is there some other kind of magic magic formula? So right now we are in, in, in what's I think technically called a pickle uh, because, and you can see it in, in um, and I know, I know you know the statistics. Uh, for over 20 years, our BAIRD, meaning business investment in R&D, uh, has gone down year after year. We are now lower than Poland, uh, which basically means that we are a, a developing country level. We also look at other things, which has the horrible name TFP or MFP, multi-factor productivity. Basically, apart from telling you how much innovation you have, it tells you how Canadian businesses utilize their human uh, capital. 
So a high TFP is a Toronto Raptors. No matter what kind of players you give them, they excel and they reach a playoff. What most Canadian business look like now is a Toronto Leafs. The highest wages in the industry for the lowest results possible. And so first, we need to figure out how we utilize Canadian. Because this is now 30 years and businesses are profitable, uh, we should not expect that it will come like mana from the earth. And we definitely do not want, unlike Finland and Israel, to be faced with existential crisis before this is changed. So I think there's two ways. Public discussion, an honest one about what is wrong, which hopefully will also start demands from consumer, and then collective action together. And here, I would think that public policy has to lead because nobody else will do that. To pivot slightly, so you've spent many years talking about how Silicon Valley is not necessarily the right model for innovation. And yet a lot of people still look to it. And you know, we, we can think of Canada's supercluster strategy as being very similar in design. You've been critical of those high-tech hubs for producing unequal levels of prosperity. So how do we build an innovation economy that does benefit the many and not just the few? So let's, let's again go back to, if you remember, invention and innovation, and then let's add the global system. And I think most people now understand after COVID that what really happened in the last 30 years is the way we, meaning humanity, produce wealth, goods and services have been sliced into different stages. So the way to think about it is that there are at least four stages. We, Silicon Valley, focus on only the first one. Because it focused on only the first one, uh, which is just R&D, it, it's a model that does not create uh, jobs for anyone who's not an R&D engineer and maybe, you know, venture capitalist and a few celebrity chefs. And when they finish a job, it actually moves to a different place, Korea, Taiwan, China, where they also need to do a huge amount of innovation. But what they do, they create a lot of different kinds of jobs, so different skills. If you look about Canada, let's just assume for a moment that we really want to be the Silicon Valley. We might have three regions, uh, Greater Toronto, and I'm adding Waterloo and Hamilton just for the sake of it, Vancouver and Montreal that might be able to play that game and it will create unbelievably high inequality. But then there is the rest of Canada. It is not clear to me why the forestry industry of Canada cannot compete with a Finnish one, pulp and paper, also in sophistication, also in innovating in the equipment. We have a huge country with a huge amount of variance in both the natural goods and skills. Canada, unlike a place like Israel or a small place like Silicon Valley, can actually have different innovation models in different industries, in different places. Each one of them focus on a different stage. Dan, I wonder if I can ask you about the subtitle in your book, Strategies for Prosperity in an Unforgiving World. That was actually from 2021. And uh, I think it's obvious to all of us that the world is even more unforgiving in 2022. How does innovation change in an unforgiving world? And what do Canadians need to really come to grips with to make it work for, uh, for everyone? Canadians should start thinking about innovation like hockey. We need to win. And if we win and actually create more innovation, we might even help the world, right? But we need to win. 
and the other team is very willing to get a few penalties in order to win the Stanley Cup. If we are not willing to inflict a few penalties at the right time, the Stanley Cup will keep on going to Florida. That is so painful and so poignant, um, spot on. Makes me wish I was a hockey fan. Elbows up, Canada. <laughs> exactly. Maybe even knees if, if we can get it correctly. Dan, thanks so much for being on Disruptors. You're very welcome, and I hope we'll to see you in, in the real world soon. Coming up after the break, we'll talk to the co-founders of an innovative new model for early childhood education. So stay right there. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm Teresa Doe. Wanted to let you know about a new weekly report from RBC Economics. It's called Proofpoint, and it provides original, timely economic insights from RBC's economics and thought leadership team. Find out why demand for cash is at its highest level in 60 years, despite a broad shift to e-commerce. Or learn why Atlanta, Canada has become a magnet for new residents. To explore more, visit rbc.com slash thought leadership. Welcome back. On today's show, we're exploring all facets of the innovation economy. And as John mentioned off the top, he was a judge at this year's Governor General's Innovation Awards. So John, what can you tell us about the winners? Well, the winners are all on the public record now, so I'm not uh, opening an envelope. And uh, some of them you'll recognize. The first is Carbon Cure. Uh, You may recall CEO Rob Niven was featured two summers ago on Disruptors talking about their ambition to be a global leader in carbon capture technology to reduce the concrete industry's carbon footprint. Oh, and I heard there was another Disruptors alum on the list of recipients as well. That would be Apply Board and the CEO Martin Basiri uh, and his brothers, who are such a great Canadian story. They came from Iran, went to University of Waterloo, and have developed through Apply Board the world's largest online platform for connecting international students with schools. Hmm. There was also a cool AI company I heard about. That would be Brainbox AI, and all of us in buildings right now, which is most Canadians will appreciate what they're doing, which is applying AI to optimize energy use, especially in commercial buildings, to reduce the carbon footprint of heating and cooling systems. And I think there was also a winner that came from our local university system. A company called Desired Sensation Level, or DSL, which has produced the world's first pediatric hearing aid prescription out of Western University in London, Ontario, and the National Centre for Audiology. And as we're reaching the tail end of the pandemic, can you tell us about the company that helped get us to this point? That would be lipid nanoparticles that enables COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. We all know what are now the household names behind uh, many of the uh, COVID-fighting vaccines, companies like Pfizer, Uh, but they don't do it on their own. They depend on a kind of supply chain of innovation, and that includes companies like lipid nanoparticles. One of the other winners and our next guests are not on the technology side. By contrast, they found an innovative new way to deliver a program that is essential to our society. Karen Nutarak and Tessa Lockheed are longtime educators who launched a preschool in the remote Arctic community of Pond Inlet, Nunavut. Launched in January 2016, it's called Puravik, which means a place to grow in Inuktitut. The preschool combines traditional Inuit knowledge and ways and traditional Inuit child rearing with Montessori methods. 
In 2019, Purevik was awarded the $1 million Arctic Inspiration Prize for a project committed to addressing the, quote, causes rather than symptoms of issues facing the North. And this May, Purevik was one of six winners of a 2022 Governor General's Innovation Award. Karen, Tessa, welcome to Disruptors. Thank you for having us. I'd love to start with a bit of your backstory. So Karen, I understand you've lived in Pond Inlet all your life. But Tessa, you moved to the far north from Ottawa just over a decade ago. And I'm wondering how you ended up in Nunavut and ultimately how did you and Karen decide to launch Purevik? I ended up in Nunavut in 2003 for the first time. I was going to Trent University and I took part in a Bush School program that was being run by the University of Manitoba. And this was done with a lot of different disciplines at the university. And I was able to go and join a summer-long program in Pangertang, and I immediately fell in love with Nunavut, and I knew I had to come back. So I got my teacher's degree, and when my husband and I graduated from university, we were in Nunavut. We wanted to be here more than anything. And so when we got to Pond Inlet, Karen and I met very early on when we arrived in the community, and it was a DA meeting where we first met, and the DA meeting, they were talking about how A certain issue that was at the forefront in the community at the time with regard to supporting students adequately at the high school in Pond Inlet and how we can improve supporting grade nine students. And as children move through the school system, you know, the more and more we were looking at all of these issues, the more and more we were seeing, well, we really need to be doing a better job earlier on in education because even when children sometimes enter the school system, They might not have had access to proper early childhood education programs. And in Pond Inlet at the time, there wasn't any. So Karen and I shook hands on it after a pretty heated discussion at the (laughs) local education council. And we just said, no, I think we have to do something about this. (laughs) That line, we have to do something about that, should be sort of engraved uh, in in the desk or on the wall of every would-be innovator, because that is really what innovation is about. It's about someone deciding, I got to do something about this, which is starts with identifying a problem. And probably anyone who's listening who is, is connected to education, and we all are, uh, recognizes problems uh, everywhere in the education system. It's a, it's a, a process of endless improvement. And I'm curious how you went beyond problem identification, because that's often where innovation stops. People identify the problem, they point fingers, uh, but no one figures out how to get to solutions. How, how were you able to get from problem to solution? In the preschool, we have a situation where just at the time when a child is entering, uh, sort of being excited to potentially leave home and ready to breach out beyond the family unit, it's a moment where we felt that it was really important to nourish and make sure that a child might have access to programming that are is not typically involved or accessed in, in, the, in a community like Pond Inlet, which is uh, a remote community in the Canadian High Arctic. And so often people say, well, we can't get that here because of this, that, or the other thing. Well, why not? So you, you get to a point where you've just kind of had enough <laughs> and you just want to go and, and do that and, and experiment. And the success that we've had in the community has been really central to parent support. 
when people sort of started seeing what we were trying to do and trying to provide cultural materials, language materials that were really grounded in, in what was important in Pond Inlet, we received parent support immediately. And that, that was really crucial to what we were doing and how we were doing it and why we became successful because so many people had input into what we were doing in the preschool. It was developed over a period of two years with the Nunavut Arctic College. So at that time, it was like a slow build and it had the involvement of so many people from the community. So everyone really had a vested interest in, in, in seeing this program succeed, but also that everyone really had a a part of themselves in it. Little Like everything from little sewn materials in the preschool. You know, we had the elementary school teachers have input into the actual language development of Inugdutut in the preschool program imagery that was attached to certain syllabics. And when everyone saw, we were just trying to do the best that we could so that we could support children in, in schools as a good launching pad to be ready for school. Everyone supported us right away. It was like this organic excitement around what we were trying to do. And every, when everyone kind of became involved, it, it really generated this incredible energy behind it to make it sure that it was successful. One of the challenges for any innovator is scaling, bringing that new product or service or program to a broader market and having a farther reaching impact. And Pure Week started with a classroom of 18 kids in 2016, uh, but you've since launched a program where trainers are now touring the North, introducing the program to the rest of Nunavut. How are you scaling and expanding that program while also retaining that grassroots approach that has in part made it so successful? When we decided to move forward at the suggestion of, um, of NTI. We had made this project in Pond Inlet and it was really going well in Pond Inlet. And we were contacted by Nunavut Tungavit Incorporated. And they said, we really like what you guys are doing in Pond Inlet. How can we support you in doing that? And, and we said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? What do you want us to do? And they, they said, well, we have funding that we could support you by maybe making a documentary or making training binders. And and we said, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> so said, well, we could pick a community that might be interested. And we'd already been contacted by several community programs who wanted to see what we were doing and, and actually come to the community to see how it was playing out in Pond Inlet. So essentially, we reached out to Clyde River, the Elisaksimik program there. And they had already communicated with us that they were interested in trying something similar at their preschool program. So we did a pilot project there and it was successful. And everybody contacts Karen <laughs> one at a time, you know, to say, hey, how can we how can we do that? How can we get that at our facility? And and it's all word of mouth. It's all mm -hmm. very organic and how we can uh, continue to expand. But it's different for every community. And and we try to um, incorporate their culture because every every region is has different cultures. So, for example, like in Pond Inlet, there's a certain style of kamuti uh, sled. So, for example, the sled that we might use in the preschool program in Pond Inlet and make a smaller version for it for the children to use in their play. There's a totally different style of kamuti in Cambridge or Rankin. And then different ways of, um, so we have little cle uh, seal skin cleaning boards and um, stretchers with little wooden 
Ulu, Ulu is the knife to clean the, the seal skin and each region may have different ways to clean their seal skins than how we do it in Pontinlet. That kind of culturally appropriate uh, technology, if I can put it that way, would be wonderful to have more broadly across society. So often we have things kind of presented to us or pushed on us as a one-size-fits-all. And I think that's one of the many things that makes you an innovator, is finding ways to do things in a culturally appropriate and and inclusive manner. Mm -hmm. And our dialect is different, so we adapt to their dialect like Cambridge Bay and Rankin and Ponton that all have different dialects. But it's all like, it's Inuktitut and Inuinuktut, and we can still understand their language, but we we adapt to their, their language. I, yeah, I think that that ability to adapt and to build on original ideas is extraordinarily important. And Purevik has been so successful. Again, you're, you're exporting the concept to different regions and different parts of the world. But it seems to me that the program is more than just educating young children. It's also about empowering individuals, whatever their age, to find the solutions to meet their needs and to create their own paths to success. Karen, Tessa, I'd love to hear from you about what can future innovators and other communities around the world learn from the approach that you've created to inspire their own innovations? I think what you've touched on there is something that to me is the most moving part of this project is that it's not only about the development of a child. It is also about the development and fostering and healing of adults that enter the training as well. So, for example, we've all been taught a certain way, usually in in one specific way in our own education, which is top down and to absorb knowledge and to have the teachings of others imposed upon us, if I may say. And then in this project, when you enter a room of the training, when you have, okay, well, you're here and you're going to learn from the child. You're going to sit in the side of the room and you're going to observe how a child learns and how they move from one activity to another and how they are stimulating themselves by their own interests. That also transcends into the adults as well. Whenever we go and work with the community, we're not saying, hey, we have this great program, do what we do. It's what do you need? How can we support you? This is our experience, but what kinds of things can we provide for you? I think that is such an excellent sentiment, one of mutual respect and understanding. Karen and Tessa, thank you so much for joining us today and for being on Disruptors. Really appreciate your time. What a thought-provoking set of conversations and kind of a nice bookend for innovation. We started with Dan Bresnitz, who gave a profound overview of the innovation challenge and imperative in the world, that if we are going to improve prosperity, if we're going to be able to afford all that we take for granted in our society, we are going to need to innovate much more than we are today. And that's on business to really take forward. And then we heard from Karen and Tessa, who I thought captured really well how innovation is seen and should be seen through the eyes of the user. Too often we have innovation from a central organization. It can be a government, it can be a big company saying, here, we've got a better mousetrap and we've made it accessible for you, but the user experience can kind of suck. And uh, as we know, whether it's technology or education or healthcare or other aspects of our lives, the user experience is critical to innovation. 
Teresa, what stood out for you? I loved hearing from Karen and Tessa, John, and especially them talking about how they've shifted the locus of power in the classroom. And it's that turning of conventions on their head that I think is a super key ingredient in making sure that innovation really is able to spread throughout the economy. And exactly as you mentioned, it is the focus on the user, in this case, the student, that makes everything they do just so remarkable. I can clearly understand why it is spreading throughout the circumpolar world. It's quite beautiful. That is all for now. Thanks to our guests, Dan Bresnitz, Karen Nudorak, and Tessa Lockheed. Next week, join us for the latest tech and innovation buzz with our 10-minute take series. Until then, I'm Teresa Doe. And I'm John Stackhouse. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Talk to you soon. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.